please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We're going to be reading today chapter 3, right up, uh, starting in verse 18 through the very first verse of chapter 4. One thing that I think about a lot when I'm preaching through a book of the Bible like this is pacing. It is how quickly or how slowly we move through the book, how many or how few verses we take on any given Sunday. I think sometimes of Joseph Carlyle. He was a minister in London in the 17th century who preached through the book of Job for 23 years, which I assume gave a new understanding of suffering to his people in doing so. There was also a minister at the same time who was preaching through Psalm 119, as you know, has 178 verses. So he preached 178 sermons on that chapter. And I have no doubt those men are, are better preachers than I am and could hold people's attention longer than I can. But, but nevertheless, I, that might have tried people's patience. When I think of this section of Colossians 3, my first thought was maybe to, to go a little faster, cover some more of these verses this week. And, uh, and then I, I considered a little more the importance of this topic, that we're getting into a few verses now that talk about a biblical view of marriage. And I thought, this is a topic that, that we need today, possibly more than ever, to hear what the Bible teaches about marriage and to, to get a biblical view in the big picture of the way that God has designed marriage to work. And so, thinking about that, I thought it might be good for us, actually, to, to take this a little slower. So today we're going to uh, be talking about marriage. Sort of generally speaking, uh, we're going to cover verse 18, just that one verse today and verse 19 next week, which means this week we'll be talking more about wives and their role in marriage, and next week we'll be talking more about husbands and their role in marriage. But you can't consider one without the other, and so really we're going to spend two weeks on the topic of marriage uh, and, and then take this as we can. And so what I'm going to do is read verses 18 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But again, today's focus will be on what the Bible says to wives in verse 18. So let me ask you if you would join me in standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Colossians three eighteen. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is perfect. It is the delight of our souls, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, uh, more to be sought after than gold, even much fine gold. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to understand your word, to, to treasure it, to store it up in our hearts, 
and to practice it in our lives. We cannot do that on our own. We need the help of your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So Lord, we pray that he will do these things. Bless the reading, the hearing, and the study of your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. An older minister once said, by way of advice to younger ministers, he said, if you find that people are dozing off during your sermons or having trouble paying attention, there's three things you might try. You could try a little old-fashioned pulpit pounding like this to get people's attention. He said you could try saying the word sex. That always gets people to look up. And if that doesn't work, you might try the other S word, submission. That will nearly always get people to stop what they're thinking about and to begin to pay attention. Now, he said that by way of a joke, of course, but nevertheless, there's something very true about that. And it shows what a cultural quagmire we are wading into with verses like this. When we talk about what the Bible says about wives submitting to their husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. I think it's fair to say that in our current cultural climate in which we live, there are very few places where we feel the vast disjunction between what the Bible teaches and the prevailing societal norms more than when we talk about issues of sexual morality or gender roles or gender distinctions or marriage. That's the way it is. We know that. And on on the one hand, we can simply say, you know, all of that doesn't matter. We're Christians. We believe in the Word of God. We submit ourselves to the Word of God. So So societal norms don't mean anything to us. We give ourselves to the word of God, and that's true. But on the other hand, the cultural tension can be good for us. It can push us to study the word of God to make sure that we're understanding the Bible correctly and not just understanding the meaning, but to try to hear it in its context, to see the reason behind it, to understand why it says what it says, not just to know the truth, but but to seek where is the glory, where is the beauty in the biblical worldview What is glorious about this teaching? How does it point us to Christ? How does it help us as believers to treasure Christ, to submit to Christ? And so we're going to study uh, this passage today. And like I said, verse 18 is our verse for the day, talking primarily, talking about marriage, but primarily uh, what the verse says to wives first. And I want to start with the big picture, the very big picture, and then sort of work our way in. And so if we could group it under three topics, it's going to be talking about creation, complementarianism, and then about submission. But here's the big point. I'll say this first so it doesn't get lost in the shuffle of what is said today. The point is this. In our marriages, we are meant to act out the drama of redemption on our own small stages. In our marriages, in the roles that God has given to men and to women, to wives and to husbands, We are meant to act out the drama of redemption, each on our own small stages. But first, let's look at creation. I think if we're going to understand this verse and not just understand it, but sort of be able to really embrace it and love a verse like this, we need to be able to back out and and zoom out a little bit to to take in the big picture. And that means going back to Genesis chapter 1 to see what the Bible teaches about two things. I think there's two important truths we can glean from the creation story that are are very germane to understanding what uh, the Bible says about marriage. Uh, First, we learn what the Bible says about what it means that we are created in the image of God. 
and second, what the Bible means by marriage. So we have to go back to Genesis 1 to establish a very foundational truth. And and it's a foundation without which we won't grasp the spirit of Colossians 3.18 properly. And, And that is going back to see what the Bible says about what it means that we, as men and women, are created in the image of God. And the Bible very specifically addresses that question, not just the image of God in general, but what it means that we are created male and female in the image of God. Because we can go back to Genesis 1.27. It says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Right there, right where it addresses for the first time the issue of being created as humans in the image of God, it says male and female. Both are created by God, both are in the image of God, both are blessed, both are given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, have dominion over it. That is to care for, preserve, and protect it. And and this right here in Genesis chapter 1 is the greatest dignity that any person can be given. To be created in the image of the eternal God and to be blessed by him. And it says very specifically that that is true. Both male and female, men and women, are created in the image of God and blessed by him. And so... Here's a foundation that needs to be laid, and we need to to see this, that there's this great irony that whenever the Bible is used to belittle somebody or to uh, make any person feel as though they're less important or have less value or personal worth or to make any person or class of persons feel as though they are somehow second-class citizens, there's this great irony in that because the Bible affirms exactly the opposite in the very first chapter that male and female are both created with dignity and worth and value because they are created in the image of God and they are blessed by God and they are given blessings and commissions and and mandates by God and that is something you simply can't take away from a person. And so there are plenty of people who read a verse like Colossians 3.18 that says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and they'll take a verse like this and just say, well, here's one more piece of evidence that that the Bible is just out to to subjugate women, that they're second-class citizens, that they don't have the same value and worth. And we need to hear that that Colossians and Genesis go together. We have to read them together. Uh, Whatever it means that he's saying, wives, submit to your husbands, it doesn't mean they have less worth. They are blessed by God in the image of God. And, And what we firm is true when we talk about this, is that both men and women are completely equal in worth, in value, and in dignity. And at the same time, we can say this, they have, are given different roles in the context of marriage. And it's also true in the context of the church, although our passage isn't going there today. Equal worth, equal value, and equal dignity with differing roles to play as we act out in our marriages this drama of redemption. Acting out a drama only works if each person has their own unique role to play to make the big picture work. And so equal worth but differing roles. And what we read in Colossians, we heard it in its context because we had to hear that he's not just speaking to men and women or husbands and wives, 
there's this whole code, right? It's husbands and children, or it's husbands and wives, it's parents and children, and it's masters and servants. Uh, and each of those is a unique relationship in which each party has their own unique responsibilities, their own unique role to play, their own unique calling. And, and so we see husbands and wives, they have different roles in marriage. They're not interchangeable. Parents and children have different roles to play, and they're not interchangeable. That doesn't mean that, that the children are somehow of less worth than the parents, but they have a different role. And in the created order, this is the way that God has put families together so that parents have the responsibility of authority and leadership, and children are called to obey their parents in the Lord. Now, looking at Genesis, we, we need to establish this foundation of e- equality in worth and dignity, but we also see something about marriage right there in Genesis. So in the second chapter, the creation of this story, it's expanded on a little bit. We, get, we kind of zoom in on this creation of the man and the woman. And we see man is created first. He's created out of the dust. And after he's created, God sees the one thing in all of creation that he pronounces not good. Right? He's created everything he's looked, says this is good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then he sees one thing that catches his eye and he says it's not good that the man should be alone. And so he creates woman out of the man's side. And she is created to be his wife and his helper. Verse 24 concludes uh, Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now this is, this is before the fall. This is in, in the garden, in paradise, pre-sin. God creates marriage. Marriage is God's idea. It's not a cultural invention or a human invention. It comes from God himself. He is the one who saw how he had created man and woman and and he put them there together. And he ordained the institution of marriage. It's his design. It's his idea. And therefore, it will make sense to us to say, okay, if it's God's idea, we should submit to him as the one who knows how it works. The inventor of a thing gets to decide the way that it works. Let me share an illustration. When Judah was born, my firstborn, uh, I remember holding this tiny little baby and just marveling at how, how perfect he was, just a, a perfect little human except on a very small scale. I said, tiny little nose, tiny little ears, and yet everything seemed perfect. There was one thing that, that I didn't like, and that was right on the top of his head, he had a soft spot, right? And it's there intentionally. It's, the fontanelle, it's, it's, but it's right on the crown of your head and you can push down on it on babies and it's really weird. And you're just kind of pushing right on their brain because the bones haven't fused together yet. And that just weirded me out. I did not like that. I wasn't comfortable with that. I was like, this is dangerous. I mean, this is, he's got this critical weakness right here on the top of his head that, that he could really get hurt. So obviously, Aubrey assured me, this is perfectly normal. This is how God has created babies. And in fact, they have to be this way. The, the, the bones of their skull haven't fused together yet because they have to allow the brain to grow. And if, if they're fused and, and then the brain can't grow, that's actually a big problem. Things don't work well that way. You have to have surgery if that happens. So what, what I had initially perceived as being a weakness was a tenderness that God had intentionally built in and designed in babies so that they might grow and live and be healthy and flourish. And if it's not there, something's going to go wrong. But that's part of God's wisdom and it's part of his design. It's kind of the same with marriage. 
When we talk about a husband and a wife having differing roles to play, and when we say, as the Bible teaches, that the, ma- that the husband is the head and the wife is to submit to her husband, many people will look at that and say, that is a weakness. That is a weakness in the design of marriage that bothers us. I think God would say, that's a tenderness that he has built in, in his wisdom, that he has designed, because without it, marriage won't work. It won't be healthy. We won't be able to grow and, and to thrive and to be healthy together if this, this tenderness, which we perceive as a weakness, is not there. That's part of God's good design for marriage. He is the one who has designed it and knows how it works best. Now, in trying to get the big picture of, of creation and, and male and female in the image of God, let's zoom in a little bit and talk about uh, something about complementarianism. Love and submission. We see in these first two verses that we read, verses 18 and 19 in Colossians chapter 3, we see the differing roles. Right? We, we read this in the context of equality with equal worth, value, and dignity, but differing roles. It says, The wife is to submit to her husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so we see the two different responsibilities, the two different callings to a husband and to a wife. Now, think about those two roles. I think when we think about them, we can say two things. The first thing is they're not as different as they, they appear at first. They're, the second thing is that there are differences. There are different callings, but notice how similar they are. The wife is to submit. That means that the wife must humble herself, not seeking her own desires, in order that she might submit to her husband. But the husband is called to love his wife. What does that mean? That means that the husband is called to humble himself, not seeking his own desires, in order that he might love his wife. In those descriptions, they sound like very similar roles, right? Each one is meant to humble themselves and not seek their own desires in order that they might seek what is best for the other. So there's similarities. Now, there's differences too. That's not to say that the two uh, callings are identical. Husbands are given the role of headship and are called to do so lovingly and without harshness, whereas wives are given the responsibility of being a helper and are called to submit to their husband's headship. So I want to try to locate the Bible's teaching here on sort of a a, a continuum and to say that the Bible is not teaching egalitarianism, which is that we might say there are, are no distinctions of role, perfect equality. It's not teaching that. Uh, But it's also not teaching what sometimes gets passed down as as patriarchy, uh, sort of an unhealthy secular patriarchy. It's not going there. It's teaching a uniquely Christian family arrangement. And that is why we need to read chapter 3, verse 18, in the context of chapter 3, because that's what all of chapter 3 is about the uniquely Christian way that we are to live our lives and obey the Lord together. Uh, and, and so chapter 3 starts right with this idea, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And we've talked about this idea of how we as Christians are called now that we have been raised with Christ, we find ourselves alive, raised from spiritual death, and yet still wearing these old, because our old stinky grave clothes, we need to take those off and and put off the old 
man and put on the new man, these new clothes of righteousness and, and Christian living. And, and this whole chapter then I read is coming after verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. And, and so we, we could condense it and say, listen, if then you have been raised with Christ, wives, submit to your husbands. If then you have been raised with Christ, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Right? The, now, it's easy for us simply to take the Bible's teaching on this and group it together with all the traditionalists. But you'll find that, that some traditionalists, sort of the worst of the traditionalists, they do something different. They ground this marriage relationship between husbands and wives in something maybe that somehow inherent, an inherent weakness. You know, they say, well, it's because women are too emotional to lead or women are not decisive enough, decisive enough to lead and so God has given that to the man. Well, that's not at all what the Bible does. The Bible assigns differing roles, but uh, it's, it's, what we're going to see is it's because of the drama of redemption. It's not because of inferiority or superiority on either side. Right? Equal in the image of God, equally blessed and equally commissioned, but with differing roles based on the drama of redemption. And the only reason that Christian marriage makes sense is first because we follow Christ. It's first because we follow Christ. And, and that's what we find when we ask, where, where are we going to look to find a good model of this paradigm? Right? As Christians, we want to base, you know, we want a, a model for our marriages. Where do we look? Well, uh, where do we look? We can't look to the, to the current political, cultural climate. That doesn't, that doesn't help. Um, but what's interesting is we also can't look to sort of what is considered the culturally conservative model. Right? We can't just watch you know, leave it to Beaver and think, ah, here is biblical marriage because it's old-fashioned and it's more moral. But that doesn't work either. The only model that we find for marriages is the model of the gospel. That when the Bible talks about husbands and wives, it, it always goes back to Christ. Even in this verse where he so briefly says, as is fitting in the Lord. Right? If we go to Ephesians, Ephesians talks about husbands and wives but it expands on it a little bit more. Uh, I want to read some of those verses. Ephesians 5.24. Same topic, but here's what he says in Ephesians 5.24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he goes on. But what he's, he's doing there is he's talking about husbands and wives, the same roles that he mentions in Colossians, but here he expands on the model. And the model is he points us to the relationship between Christ and the church. In fact, he says, uh, verse 32, this mystery, now he's just quoted Genesis about a man leaving his, his father and mother and clinging to his wife, so he's talking about marriage, and he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's reading this verse that we've always read about marriage, about husbands and wives, and saying that the profundity of this mystery is that it's not just husbands and wives. It's Christ in the church. And the model for our marriages is not you know, 
cultural liberality or cultural conservatism, it's the gospel. That we only understand the roles that we are to play within a marriage when we understand the way Christ has loved and given himself for the church, and therefore the way that the church is called to submit in all things to Christ. And in that, we find a model for uh, Christian marriage. If you remember throughout the Old Testament, God has, even in the Old Testament, God is referring to Israel as his bride. And he's loving his bride. He's, he's delighting in when his bride follows him. But we remember in the Old Testament, God is often uh, expressing the pain that his bride is not following him, but, but going astray. And yet we see the Lord is always the faithful husband. He goes after his people. He pursues them when they don't pursue him. And we come then to Ephesians where it talks about Christ giving himself for his bride, sacrificing himself for his bride in order that he might wash her, purify her, sanctify her, make her without spot or blemish. And in talking about that, he's doing that so, well, one, we'll know the love of Christ, but we'll fill out this model that is given to us for our marriages. What should a husband's love for his wife look like? And therefore, how... What is the heart of the wife as she submits to her husband? So now I want to zoom in a little bit more and, and simply talk about verse 22, or verse 18 rather, and, and what it means that wives are called to submit to their husbands. Why do we find a verse like this difficult to hear? For many of us, I, I think there's at least a couple reasons. One, we struggle with this idea that we have equal worth, value, and dignity in differing roles. We haven't learned how to put those two things together yet. Um, and secondly, we struggle oftentimes to separate biblical commands from cultural mores. Right? So, so we have trouble separating what exactly do we hear as a biblical command and what is sort of the traditional way that those commands are fleshed out for us. Here's what's interesting about this verse. It's, it's a specific verse. And it addresses wives, and it tells them very specifically that they are to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But we should also recognize that it's not too specific. It doesn't get into the specific ways that that is therefore going to be played out. It doesn't talk about who does the cooking, who does the cleaning, who does the finances. It doesn't address whether, whether a wife ought to work outside the home or not. And if so, how many hours? Is there too many? And it's not talking specifically about some of these questions that we bring to it, but it does tell us a very important thing, and it uses this word, submit. So what does that mean? What is submission? I believe that, based on what we just said, we'll always get in trouble if we try to define submission with respect to a particular set of behaviors. If we try to define submission with respect to a particular set of behaviors, we'll get into trouble. Uh, because every couple has different personalities, different strengths, there's different, we come from different cultural backgrounds, that will get us into trouble. So here's a, what I think is a good definition of submission. Submission is a disposition to yield to the husband's authority and an inclination to follow his leadership. Submission is a disposition to yield to the husband's authority and an inclination to follow his leadership. Which is to say that submission has first to do with a heart attitude. And you hear that there is this attitude of humility, of being willing to die to yourself 
right? Not to seek your own desires first, but to be willing and, and perhaps even inclined to follow the headship of a husband. Ephesians will add the word respect. It says also wives should respect their husband, which gets at this, the same idea, this heart attitude of a humble desire to follow and, and to, to submit and to yield to the husband's authority. Now, an alternative is, is this. It's, it's important, I think, that we notice that Paul, when he's talking to children, and even when he's talking to the servants, he uses the word obey. But when he's talking to wives, he uses the word submit. Now, that's notable because even in that time, in that day and age, uh, sort of the Roman code, the Roman model of marriage was that a wife should obey her husband. And Paul doesn't use the word obey. He uses the word submit. With parents and children, it's different. Right? We, we recognize that, that there is a natural authority that is simply built into that relationship. Uh, they don't come to the table as equal partners, right? There's not equality in that sense with the, the parent-child relationship. But I think it, it's different here because Paul recognizes that husbands and wives, men and women, are equal in Christ. There is no sort of uh, natural subservience. He's not saying that the husband is an authority over his wife in the same way that a master is an authority over a servant. But he is saying that in Christ, the husband is the head of the wife in Christ, right? As is fitting in the Lord. And, and therefore, you know, the wife, the same thing. The wife is not naturally subservient to her husband. But in Christ, she is called to submit to his headship. And it's in Christ that he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's the end of verse 18. That's such an important little phrase that shows that in our marriages, there is a, a model of marriage that is fitting for those who are in the Lord. And therefore, we understand there are other models that are not fitting for those who are in the Lord. Paul's not teaching here some kind of wifely submission as an accommodation to, to patriarchal culture. It's not just that he's reacting against something that he's seen in the wider world and he doesn't like it, so it's a knee-jerk reaction. He teaches this model of marriage because he says it's fitting in the Lord. We, we said this, it's it's based off the model of Christ and his love for the church and therefore the church's obedience and submission to the Lord. That's This verses just give us this little version of, of what is expanded on more in Ephesians, that, that we said this, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is himself its savior. Right? There's this analogy to be had between Christ and the church and between the relationship between a husband and his wife. There's something profound in that. To recognize that in our marriages, right, in, in the closest relationship, closest human relationship that we will have, we are being given a model to understand the spiritual dynamic and the relationship between Christ and his bride. Think of that picture of what he's saying. Even as the, the church submits to Christ, wives are to submit to their husbands. Think of how we hear those two things differently. When, when we hear the wives submitting part, it's easy, I think it's easy for us to sort of chafe under that and to hear that and say, that doesn't, that doesn't go down easily. We never chafe when we hear that the church submit to Christ, right? We recognize that as good and, and beautiful and true and appropriate. Why? 
Well, in part because we know that with Christ, there's simply no fear that he's going to take advantage of that. Right? There's no fear of, of, of saying we must humble ourselves before him because we don't fear that he's going to somehow walk on top of us. We know how much he's willingly sacrificed his own personal comfort to love us and to serve us and to save us, literally laying down his life for us in order that we might live. Why would, why would anyone have trouble lovingly submitting to somebody who, who loves them that deeply and who has cared for them? Now, that's the model. Now, we know that, our, that human husbands are not perfect and human wives are, are not perfect. But this, this is the thing. In our, in our human marriages, we are called to act out the drama of redemption on our little stages. God has designed marriage to follow the model of Christ in the church, to, to follow this model, so that we are acting out every day as a husband lovingly leads and sacrifices without harshness, and as a wife lovingly and joyfully submits to his headship, we are acting out the drama of redemption that God has played out on the universal stage for all to see with Christ and his bride. We play it out in our small stages. And and if you have children in the home, here's one of the ways that they get to learn the joy of submitting to Christ, is that they see their mom joyfully submitting to her husband as is fitting in the Lord. And it's one of the ways they learn about the love of Christ is by watching their dad and seeing him lovingly sacrifice himself for the good of his wife. If we're honest, neither of those roles is easy. Being the the head and, and taking up that call to authority and leadership, that's not easy. Being, being the wife and taking up that call to submission is not easy. In some ways, both are, are called to yield to the role that they have been called to play. Many of you know the, the name Tim Keller, a, a well-known minister in the PCA who, who's known for his intelligent and articulate defense of the faith. You might not be quite as familiar with his wife, Kathy, who is also an articulate an intelligent defender of the faith, and a wonderful teacher. Uh, After one time sharing about a time in her marriage when it was hard for her to submit to her husband in a very weighty decision, she simply asked the question, why it is that women are called to be the ones who submit at times like that. And here's what she says. She wrote this. We must reject the traditionalist answer, namely that women are not decisive enough. The fact is, many wives are more decisive than their husbands, and many are more intelligent, too. She said it, not me. It's true, though. I know that, (laughs) more than anyone. So why are women called to this position? As I said, this is her, as I said, the answer to that question is another question. Why did Christ become the one to give up authority to the Father? We don't know, but it is a mark of his greatness not as in his indecisiveness. And women are called to follow him here. I think she's thinking of Philippians chapter 2. Christ, who is in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is the model of submission. 
Christ himself, we, we think of the, the whole Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is, has ordained this plan of redemption and God the Son, Jesus Christ, submits himself to the will of the Father. Right? Jesus himself says, not my will, but thine be done. Why should Christ be the one who had to submit and go to death, even death on a cross? We don't know. But as she says, that's a mark of his greatness, not a mark of inferiority or indecisiveness or unintelligentness. It's a mark of his greatness that he would willingly and joyfully and humbly submit himself. And we now praise him, not only as the savior of all who believe, thank God, but also as the model of humility and the model of perfect submission to the will of another. So why, she asks, should women be the one who are called to, to submit when husbands are not? And she says, why should Christ be the one who had to submit to his father? We don't know, but there's nothing inherently oppressive in that to follow the model of Christ. And I think that's the key to Colossians 3.18. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Where does the power to submit come from? It doesn't come from, from, from any cultural model. It comes from Jesus, from his model, from his example and his willingness on all of our behalves to humble himself, to not seek his own good, but to seek the, will, the good of another, to seek what is best for us. And that's where all of us will get the power to live that same way in our marriages. For husbands who are called to not seek their own good, but to humble themselves and love and seek what is best for their wives. And for wives to get the power to humble themselves, not seeking their own good, but seeking what is best for their husband. And that, more than anything, is why we read this in the context of chapter 3, where we can, we can, can read it together, uh, you know, starting in verse 1 and simply saying, if you've been raised with Christ, wives, submit to your husbands. And if you've been raised with Christ, husbands, love your wives. This is the Christian model for marriage that all depends first on what God has done for us in Christ, on the way he's loved us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the way that it confronts us and challenges any assumptions and, and that teaches us and leads us in the path everlasting, that shows us your wisdom, that shows us your perfect righteousness, that always takes us back to our Savior Jesus Christ and, and drops us at his feet, that we may sit before him, hearing from him, uh, listening to him, loving him, obeying him. We pray now that your spirit will take your word and, and make it.